Well, for some time now, I've been in this expository, consecutive expository series in the book of 1 John, a very practical book about very a number of very important things in the Christian life. And John keeps it simple and pretty straightforward and somewhat repetitive because he wants to make sure we don't miss the message that he's conveying about these important things that show that we truly are the people that can know our God. And we're going to resume where we left off, picking up the reading in 1 John chapter 3 now, and beginning at verse 11, the last part of the Last time we looked at verses 4 through 10, and, and at the very end, and the, this is not on your, your uh, reading that will be on the screen to follow along, but it says this, by this it is evident who the children of God are who, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's where... John picks up and elaborates on that, what it means to love our brother and sister. So our reading begins officially at verse 11 through verse 18. Remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Hear it carefully. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this, your inscripturated word. Lord, you've given us the truth, but we still will not understand it. We will not apply it. and We will not have the power to live by it and according to it unless you send your Holy Spirit, unless you help us, unless you renew us and you make your word alive today. We pray that you would come. And, Lord, let us hear the sound of your voice through the word. And, Father, help us to receive it and appreciate it with meekness. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. No matter how much we think we know, and we think at this point in time in history, we know quite a bit. But there is so much more that we do not know. And there are so many things that we probably can't know as long as we're here on this world. Yet, despite that, there are many things we can know for sure. There are things we can discover about our planet, about our creator, and about how to have a relationship with him. And that's in this book that we call the Bible. And John is talking about that and some of the ways that we can know that we have a relationship with him for sure. The subtitle of our series suggests that you may know. That's the subtitle of the series. There are some things that we can know for sure. Not just wish or hope or wonder about, but we can be confident in. And the concept of knowing is a dominant theme in the book of 1 John. It shows up in this section very prominently. That we're going, actually this today and next time, next week, is this part two. Because both of these sections are about how we can know that we belong to God. And John is going to give us essentially two tests. He talks about this idea of being able to know in verse 14, verse 16, verse 19, and verse 24. Two of those are in this week's. Two of those are, will be in next week's. But the key verse is verse 14. Because it's different in structure and it summarizes the whole main point. How can we know for certain that we really are born again? How can we know for sure that we really are Christians and not just playing along and playing a game or just mimicking what we see others doing? How can we know that the life of God is inside of us? That we've been born again into a living hope that makes a difference in our lives. Well, two answers are provided in this section, basically from verse 3, 11, on through the end of the chapter. And we're going to be looking at one of those today. One we're going to look at today, and the other evidence we'll look at next time out, next week. So what's our outline for this morning? Pretty simple. What love is not, what love is, and what love does. What it's not, what it is, and what it does when it comes to loving one another, loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. John says this is a very important way that we can be sure that we are in a relationship with God. So let's look at, first of all, verses 3, 11 through 15. What love is not. Now, we just read the text some of us that have been around for a while remember probably a movie, perhaps, if you're especially a World War II movie buff and you like to watch a lot of uh, movies about World War II, you may remember a movie called The Dirty Dozen. Some of you are nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you uh, younger folks are saying, what in the world is that? Well, it's talking about a Basically, a bunch of cons that got out for a very, and put in charge to uh, accomplish a very special mission that was very deadly and likely none of them would come back alive. Some did, some didn't, uh, but they did accomplish it. But that was the dirty dozen. Well, do you know that the Bible gives us the 
It's not the dirty dozen, but the lovely dozen. There's at least a dozen references in the New Testament about loving one another. Twelve love one another's in the Bible, and one of them is right here in the text that we read this morning in verse 11. Look, listen again. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. This is what I've been telling you from the first time you became a believer or a Christian. When you first started following Christ, you've known how important this is. Love one another. That's what John is saying, that you should love one another. Jesus, remember, said that was going to be one of the hallmarks by which the world would know that we're his disciples and that he's here and that he's real. That he's genuinely here and he really is ascended to the throne and he is coming back because of the love that we show for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But surprisingly, he doesn't begin with just the positive. He starts contrasting that with the darkness of the deeds of Cain who slew his brother Abel and recorded in Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to read that, but you know the story. Basically Cain, the two and Abel, the two sons that are mentioned of Adam and Eve, Cain murdered his brother in Genesis 4:8, and it was an action that proved that he was in the control and in league with the evil one the murderer from the beginning. The one John says, the murderer from the beginning, talking about Satan himself. In other words, he is saying that the deeds of Cain were evil. He was a murderer because he hated and resented his brother and his hatred led him to actually physical murder. Cain's jealous resentment of his brother's superior righteousness caused him to slay his brother. Now, that tells us something, I believe, about how easy it is to be, practice hatred toward one another or toward our brother or sister in Christ. You say, oh, I don't hate anybody. Well, be careful. <laughs> Sometimes we do. Because when we disregard, when we are jealous, that's what leads to that. It may not go as far as us actually ever murdering someone. Probably won't. But it starts down the same road, the same path that led Cain to do what was evil. And it started with the hatred that he had in his heart toward his brother because he was jealous. He was jealous of his brother. And, he, and sometimes as Christians, we are prompted by feeling guilt about our own life when we compare ourselves to someone else. Let's just pick on Jeff here since we've already picked on him already today. Suppose there are things in Jeff's life and his relationship with the Lord that I find myself just not being able to measure up to. And I become more and more jealous of Jeff because of the gifts that God has given him and because of how cool he is and because of what another. And I start becoming more and more resentful at him. And I start not wishing him well. I start not doing things for him. I find myself resentful. I find myself applauding when he falls in some way or he ends up not coming off looking as good. I find myself rejoicing in that. That's a jealous envy that ultimately breaks down and leads to something that smells like smoke. Something that's from a dark place and it is not supposed to be in the heart of the child of God. John is saying, 
there is, this is the, what, uh, the opposite of what I'm talking about. And in verses 14 and 15, John says, this is how we know who's who, whether or not we have love in our heart rather than hatred and jealousy of others. Well, this is how we know who belongs to God and who doesn't. The essence, John's saying it's really very simple. No love, no life. If you don't have love in your heart for your brother and sister, then it's probably an indicator you're not spiritually ticking. You are, you are not alive spiritually. Love and hate are, John says, moral and spiritual opposites, and they are utterly incompatible with one another. That's his point. You can't say, I love you, but inside be hating your brother. And you can't, he, he says, just, it's, in, it's incompatible. It's inconceivable, the two. And, or to put it in the, in the form of a, maybe in a phrase that we sometimes use in old, old town westerns that you've seen, this town ain't big enough for both of us. Your heart's not big enough to love and hate at the same time. You either love your brother or you will hate your brother. And both of those will result in some kind of an attitude or action toward one another, either of love, furthering, lifting up, elevating, or somehow tearing down, breaking down. It may not lead to murder, something as heinous as that, but in some way, jealousy will break down. And one is a sign of life that God is present, the other is not. Now, John then goes on and specifically puts a spotlight on what love is in the second uh, part of this. That's found in verse 16. That's found there. Most people consider the law of life to be self-preservation. Most people think, hey, what's it all about? It's all about staying alive. You know, staying alive. Self-preservation. But Jesus taught us and demonstrated something else. The first law of spiritual life is self-sacrifice. That's the first law. Not self-preservation, self-sacrifice. That's a whole nother ball game. The perceptive Forrest Gump, many of you know who he is, once told Jenny, Jenny, I know what love is. You, some of you know, remember that. But instead of taking Forrest's word for it, let's listen to what John said in verse 16 again. Look. By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The epitome of love is seen where? On the cross. If you ever doubt the love of God, don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at what's happening to your neighbor or what happened across the other side of the ocean. Look at the cross, and there you will know the love of God. It's the epitome is seen in the cross and what was accomplished there and what Jesus did in sacrificially dying. Jesus came not only to teach the truth, he came to demonstrate it in our behalf. His, what he did on the cross was voluntary. It was vicarious, meaning it served as a taking away sin. It, it came and obliterated, removed the sin that was on us. 
took that away, washed that away, and it's victorious. But John doesn't regard Jesus' death as simply an example. A lot of times people think, oh, that was a wonderful thing that Jesus did. What a wonderful example. Well, it was an example, but it was so much more. It wasn't just an example. For John, it's the very definition. What happened on the cross and what Jesus did there is the very definition of the word love. You can't talk about the word love without thinking of what Jesus did. When you, when what, when you say love, what pops into your mind is the ultimate example of love. It's not only example, it's the very definition of it. There are two ways, John says, because he did that, you should lay down also your life. You should follow suit. You should follow kind. You should follow in your Savior's footsteps and love one another. Now, let me ask you this. Is it real likely and real probable that you and I are going to have to give up our life someday to save another brother or sister or family member or someone physically? It is possible. Some of you are in the military. Some of you put your life on the line. You may, you may have one day give up your life in that way. It's possible that some of us, we don't know what the future holds. We may one day be living in a persecuted land like many brothers and sisters around the world are today. And we're sitting here not afraid that we're going to go walk out of here and have anything but an opportunity to go home and eat lunch after a while. But we're, we're, we're not, we just don't think of that. And that's probably not likely, at least in the present, going to be something we have to face. So we think, well, we're off the hook. No, there's two kinds of what it means to lay down our life. How can that be illustrated? One is it literally we lay down our life, like I was just talking about. But the other is figurative. It's giving something up for the sake of another that benefits them and disadvantages us personally. Because we're giving something we have and it's going to someone else in need. And therefore, it's not there for us. That is another way that we practically lay down our lives for others. Giving up something for the sake of others. This type of giving is may not result in the bloodletting of your life, but it's still very demanding. It's very hard to do, isn't it? We're very selfish creatures. We naturally want to take care of who? Us and our immediate. We don't think naturally about how can I help others? How can I help brothers and sisters in need? It's something that does not come natural to us. It's supernatural. It comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Showing concern for the needs of others is a daily struggle against personal selfishness. I fight it every day of my life. It is so hard for me to want to do something that is selfless and that benefits someone else that besides me. It just goes against the grain of everything in my sinful nature. But there's also something that's there too. If the Holy Spirit is within me and is within you, then he will prompt us to be giving, to be sacrificial. You see, it's pretty easy to experience loving moments. I'm not bad at doing that. Every once in a while, blind squirrel can find an acorn 
and I can do and have a loving moment with you, with my wife, with any number of other brothers and sisters. But a loving life where I'm constantly sacrificing, where I'm constantly putting myself out of the focus and putting someone else that's a child of God, whether it's a family member or whether it's one of you or someone else, that's where the rubber really meets the road. But that's what John is calling us to. He's saying the people of God, they're marked by that. They have a desire. And even when they fail in that, they confess that and they own that. And they say, God, help me to have a giving heart like you have for me in giving your only son. So what does love do? That's in verses 17 and 18 again. That we should be ready to lay down our lives for one another if it comes to that. However, there are more likely scenarios, according to verses 17 and 18. Listen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, and by implication, that closes his hand as well, because the heart always leads the hand. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed. And in truth. Now John goes from describing a, a plural love, a love for the brothers or sisters, uh, a big group of people. He goes from that now and gets very specific. He zooms in. This time he uses the word, it's singular. A particular brother, a particular sister. So he's gone to, to being general to very specific. A little boy once said to his mommy, Mommy! I love mankind. It's the people I can't stand. In other words, individually, it's all these individual sinners that he has trouble with. He loves the ideal of mankind, but you got to actually be kind and loving and giving and sacrificial towards other sinners like us. That's tough. You see, common sense makes it clear that you will not like some people you meet as well as others that you meet. And that's true in the church as well. Just because of what? Because of disposition, background, preferences, etc. So you're just going to like some people more than others. But that, there's no cop out here. There's no way to escape. John's not talking about who you like. He says, I want you to love. One's an action. It's not a feeling. It's not a preference. It's demonstrate, show love to one another in sacrificial ways. Love sees beyond what it does not like in a person to minimize it in order to see the person Jesus sees. That's what love does. It looks at someone, it's not blind, says, yep, I really don't like that person a lot sometimes. But I know he or she is a child of God. I know Jesus sees something, and that's my brother. And I'm going to share eternity with him or with her. Lord, help me see beyond and see what you see. Unleash my heart from being held back, calculated, Help me to open my heart and my hand to need. 
In verse 18, John stresses that our love is not just to be in truth, but in action. You're talking about an opportunity. <laughs> we got a great opportunity to the east of us. We've already talked about it today. I'm not saying what. I'm not trying to be the conscience. Of, I'm not the Holy Spirit for you. I want God to lead you to do what you think. I want him to lead me to do what I should according to what he's prompting. But we all have to look for ways to be proactive, to be purposeful, to be intentional in demonstrating our love for others. That is sacrificial. That costs us something. You know, what? You know, yeah, on a physical plane, yes, we need your money. God doesn't need your money. He could keep this place going any way he wanted to. But he's chosen that. And you know why he asked you to give? Why he asked you to sacrifice some of what, quote, quote, we think is ours? It's because he knows that when we do that, when we put his interest in the interest of others above him, above ourselves, we show that we're like him. We demonstrate to the world and to others that this is not what they're, it's all about. It's not just what we have here and now. We can let that go. We can give generously. It's we need it. And so God calls for us to give it. Not that he needs it. We can demonstrate our love. Most of us know the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 30-37. What's the moral of that story? Talk is cheap. A lot of the other guys went by and talked, hey, be blessed, have a great day. But they didn't do anything. The Samaritan, the, the reviled one in that culture is the one that helped. And Jesus said, basically, go and do likewise. Go, go, go find a neighbor. Go to one another. Help one another out. I'm thankful to God that we have a church that does this in so many ways. If you haven't experienced that, hang around. You will. Uh, we're blessed. Compassion, generosity, giving are traits shared by those who know and love God. Matter of fact, folks, it's inconceivable for us to do otherwise in light of what he's done. That's all, that's all John is saying here. He said, he said, I'm just pointing out the most obvious thing in the world. If you really know what God has done, and if you really know how much you've been forgiven and how much you've been loved by him and how much his sacrifice cost, you're not going to hold back when the opportunity comes. You're going to give generously to him, to his cause, to his kingdom, to the needs of are your brothers and sister as God presents them. You can't do it all. You can't give all. You can't be there and meet everything. Don't be bound up by trying to meet everyone's expectations. Live free, but live generously. Reach out with more than words, more than talk, but with truth, reality, and action. This is how we can know that we are his, according to John. This is how we can know. How can we know? The question of the title this morning, how can we know? Is this kind of heart, the sacrificial giving heart in you and in me? This is how we can know that we're his and the life of God is in us. It's the first of two ways. And we'll look at the second one next week, God willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise 
Lord, that you're not through with us. And we're far from being the loving people that we should be. Even to those that that we are in professed, avowed relationships with, whether it's family or whether it's other members of the church. And yet, Father, I pray that, that you will help us demonstrate that we have your love inside of us. And others will know it. They will know it is true. They'll know we're yours. They'll know we belong to you and that your life is in us because of the way we love one another. Father, we're going to sing in just a moment. They will know we are Christians by our love. And Father, help that to be more and more true, not just words, but that which speaks of truth in action and demonstration as you did for us in your son. Lord, help us as your children to follow you in that way. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.